Hello and welcome to the Strength to be Human podcast with your host, poet and playwright, Mark Anthony Rossi. In this, our third year, we continue to explore the meaning of being an artist in an ever-changing digital world. Now, without further ado, here is your host. Hi folks and welcome back to Strength to be Human. I'm your host, poet and playwright Mark Anthony Rossi. This is episode 207, Constructing Lighter Topics with Relacy in Mind. I know, sometimes I get long in these titles and that one actually sounds more clinical than usual, but hey, there's a real point for it and uh, I'm going to enjoy really talking about this. Now there's going to be uh, four sections of this show and then, and of course, an introduction. So it's almost like five sections. It's definitely going to be a little longer than we normally go. But there's a lot to cover and I want to cover it well. I've spoken about this sort of thing before on other shows, but never an entire show about it. This is one of those shows where we were doing like multiple subjects. So I never really covered everything I wanted to talk about. All right. So what's the introduction here? It's pretty simple. I'm talking about lighter topics like when people write uh, about nature or about animals or, you know, their grandmother getting sick or, you know, their family having fun or, hell, I even got a poem where somebody whose family had a fight and in that poem, they, uh, through the fight, they learned more about themselves, which sounds uh, wonderful and poetic, but I'm not really sure how realistic that is. But hey, that's not part of writing. You can, you can do what you want. But... What I've found throughout the years, and, I, and it's part of the human condition, so there's not one individual at fault for this. It, it's pretty common, and it's unfortunate that folks, when they write what they call the positive or on the lighter side or inspirational, I mean, there's so many different ways to describe it, they don't take it serious. In many instances, it's even written poorly. Yet, when you have folks that write things that are, that are deeply dark, even disturbing, certainly dramatic, why do they suddenly have such keen focus? Why does the work compel you? Why does it bring you in? Why does it hit you over the head? Why does it leap off the page? These are all the things I expect a writer to do in general. Why do they need to do the dark stuff that way and then the lighter stuff they don't they don't take serious because that's what it is. And that's what we're going to talk about. Trying to put together lighter topics about things that don't come off so so uh, careless and so weak. That's probably the only way that, to really describe what I'm, what I'm feeling about that. All right, so let's go on to the first uh, segment of the show on this, and that would be light versus lightweight. And that's really the conflict with a lot of this stuff here is Folks, when they write these things, let's say it's about nature. I'll give you a good example. I had someone that that wrote uh, an injured deer in 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 the forest, and that was pretty much the substance of what they put together. Now, I didn't find it compelling. Nothing jumped off the page, and God knows I got nothing against nature, or the forest, or a deer. But, you know, I'm rejecting it like, listen, uh, I, I think I've heard this before. It's called Bambi, okay? Although I think she got burnt to death or something in the forest. So, I mean, 
if you're going to do something along these lines. It has to be taken just as seriously than if you wrote about some inspirational coach you had that, that helped you when you were not feeling well and, and helped you to get to some great goals and you finally got out of your shell and became a, a man or you became a woman or whatever and then you're putting, you're putting your heart and your soul into it. Uh, but the deer in the forest, it's, it's just like you scribbled it from something that, you know, at a bar. Or, or, or you're just doing it in between, uh, you know, uh, lectures at the church. This is one of the problems. We go to do something light, something that we believe is inspirational and positive, something that may be just less than what the common news comes out with. And I, I understand why people do this. I also understand, you know, you, everything can't be dark. Not everything can be serious and, and, and super dramatic. I got that. I, I, I got to appreciate that. But, you still have to have the same level of intensity with the lighter material just like you did the darker material. And if you don't, you can tell the difference. You can tell the difference in the person's commitment. You can tell the difference in the, in the depth and the real quality of, uh, of the writing. You can tell what's leaping off the page and what's just sitting there like stillbirth or something. Okay? It's important that if you're going to do anything that's going to be on the lighter side, that it has to still have relevancy. You can't just say, yeah, it's about nature, man. Oh, yeah, it's about the environment. Come on, folks. These are, these are cold words for putting me to sleep, okay? And, and the readers as well. It's the reason why a lot of this stuff I can't publish in my journal aerial chart. Now, you'll see examples of me doing this, but you'll also see work that had merit, that you could tell they put some time into it. They had some levels to it. Fine, you want to be a grandma and you want to write about how your grandchildren are having fun with spaghetti? Do it. Just do it well, please. Do it with some flash. Do it with some panache. Do it with some finesse. Do it with some rhyme. Do it with some reason, but do it well. Don't play games. Don't come back defensively. Well, you know, I'm a grandma, I'm, I'm not a uh, Ron Poe over here, and uh, it's my grandkid, and this is really what moved me that day. Great. But no one says you need to give me a half of a first draft or something, okay? No one says it has to be something that has no soul. You love your grandkid? Okay. Start with that. Put down some notes, rewrite this thing until it has a real, real strength to it. I'd be happy to look at it then. I got no problem. I, I don't make a judgment between the poem about the kid with spaghetti face versus the poem about somebody on a life raft trying to escape a, a, an abusive country. All right? There's no more value in one than the other on an artistic level. But that person that's writing about that raft, they're focused. They're serious. They want you to understand what's going on. Why cannot you do the same on the lighter side of things? That's really the problem. You cannot be, in my opinion, uh, suddenly become a lightweight on this and, and think this is okay. Giddy, 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 ookie, ookie, ookie. No. If you're not taking it serious, then just don't, don't even bother with it then. It's going to get rejected everywhere, including me. And, and rightfully so. I understand how this thing works in society and how it even works in the human condition. So I ask people to try to examine what they're doing. 
Maybe it needs another draft or two to finally get to the, to the level we're talking about. But you owe it to yourself, to the subject at hand, and certainly to the arts to make sure that you're giving us something that has some foundation, that has some gravity. doesn't matter how positive and fun it might be. It still needs to be art. It still needs to move us or make us laugh or make us think or make us even reminisce. Yeah, I remember when I had a kid and he had spaghetti over his face too. That was a, that was a gas. Great. But take it serious. Please don't just scribble some stuff down and you know, just think it's all fun. Without getting too deeply philosophical here, I've always thought, maybe even theorized, that in in a galaxy or even a universe where, you know, many of us believe there is actual evil as well as good, I think that evil often thinks that it is better and more importantly, believes that it is stronger just because not the cliche knee-jerk reaction that many people get in this philosophical argument. Well, it's because it's arrogant, so of course it's going to think that. Uh, no, I really don't think it's that at all. I think that in many instances, it senses that those on the light side, that those that want to be positive, in many instances, send signals that sound like they're weak, like they're unsure. You ever notice in, in a lot of TV shows that the dark, evil characters, they seem to have their, their stuff together. They seem to have a plan. They even have an entire rationale to it. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not, I'm not admiring them, and I'm certainly not cheerleading them, <laughs> and I'm not jealous of the plan, but I notice that they do. And the good is just like, hey, it'll work out. Don't worry about it. Uh, I've worked all my life, and I'm... Um, I have work ethic, and I believe in God, and um, I'm a good person, so it'll be okay. Never truly understanding that that's not enough. It, it, it reminds you of the people I meet sometimes when I when I go out and I, and I talk with folks, and they're like, "But Mark, I just want to have a, a, a life of peace." That's that's wonderful. Nothing wrong with that. And I, I'm not trying to be the devil's advocate because I could care less about that, that role. I just want to understand the facts. And the facts is, is that, sure, you want to have peace in your life. You want to have peace in your community. You want to have peace in the world. What the hell are you willing to do for that? Because if you're surrounded by people that they're not really interested in peace, what are you supposed to do then? Huh? Just, you know, chant some songs that you learned at, you know, at camp or something? Hmm? Because that's not going to work. And I think that's one of the problems with good in general is I don't often think it understands the nature of evil. I don't think it understands that, you know, it has to get its act together too. Remember, we have a million examples of this in history where the evil, whether it would be... Um, Hitler or Stalin or Pol Pot or um, Idi Amin, let's say, um, understood instinctively that they can push farther and farther with their dark programs because the good 
that was still in their communities, that was still in their countries, that was still out there, was half asleep. That always wanted to see the bright side of things. That's all nice and everything, but when you encounter people that they only want to see the bright side of things, you have to wonder, are they wearing some like lenses underneath it that's blocking them? Are they blind? Because it's nice to find the, blight, the, the bright side in things, but you're not always going to do that. But for somehow you do, well, then you're really lying to yourself. Then you're in denial. Then you're deceiving yourself. Kind of like Chamberlain in England. Eh, he signed a non-aggression pact. He's cool with us. Hitler's all right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Next thing you know, he's raining, raining rockets on your country and people are dying by the thousands. Yeah, thanks a lot for that. The bright side. Okay. Why could he not see that this man was up to no good? Don't tell me you can't learn how to read people, understand their words, check out some of their previous actions, read some of their damn body language. He couldn't do any of this stuff? No, he couldn't. You know, if you learn anything about the Chamberlain guy, he was a friggin' idiot. Too wed to the ideology to never actually see what the hell is in front of him. And that's the problem. We need to learn that in our writing. We need to understand that in our lives. That oftentimes the good is, is wed to some, some crazy form of beliefs that we don't want to leave and get out of. But evil always seems to be flexible to do whatever the hell it wants. Whatever story it has, whatever lie it wants to make up, whatever whatever line it wants to cross, even within the things it said it believes. Because it doesn't really believe it. It wants to leave the, the table open. Keep everything ready to go. It's why oftentimes, at least in the short term, it, it tends to succeed. Because good is too busy looking for the bright side. Too busy sleeping. Too busy expecting that, that tomorrow is going to be great so I don't have to worry about today. While evil is just sitting there planning. <laughs> Ready to strike. We'll see that in all our lives all over the place. And that's the point I'm trying to make over here. Even with writing. That sort of belief that comes through down from centuries. That seems to be still stuck into our society. And even in our daily lives. It messes us up. And it doesn't allow us to write the way we should write, especially when one want to stick to some positive subjects. And I say all this because, first of all, yeah, I'm human too, okay? I, I don't want people bashing me, oh, Mark just wants to put out some heavy stuff, man, because he has an international journal. But uh, my, my poem about the gay frog in the Everglades, it doesn't seem to really reach him. Uh, no, it doesn't. I mean... You have to have some depth. You have to make some understanding. And I don't know how you can tell a frog is gay. So I don't know why that makes a difference. Not that I'm saying that a frog has to be straight. I'm just saying that, hell if I know. So how the hell you know? I don't even think science knows. And if it's a metaphor for something else, um, maybe you could pick a different animal where we might make some you know, heads and tails of it all. Or maybe just talk about a human being since you want to talk about this. Let's be straight in our thinking and in our, in, in, in our language. Let's be direct about it. So I, I've gotten stuff like this before. And I'm like, 
You know? I mean, I'm a pretty open-minded guy, but I'm not really sure what I could do with the gay frog poem. Just don't know. And I already had the purple gay alien story, too. And I'm like, I'm not really getting this here. What's the point? Now, I'm not into graphic sex and writing, so I don't accept that. But, you know, what else is really to tell us about the, the gay purple alien? What is he doing that makes him even gay anyway? And, I don't know, is there a such thing in the alien world? For, for all we know, they, they, they might have 20 different ways of going about things that might be beyond what we do. So, I'm not really catching that. But again, these are things that people are trying to be positive about. Trying to bring across in a positive manner. But it fails because in the end, there's too many good intentions and not enough good art. Okay? There's too many, wow, I wish this and I wish that and not enough of getting something in there that is realistic. Somebody told me cynically one one time, not not very long ago, you know that um, they they felt darkness was more realistic than than goodness. They felt goodness was more of a fantasy that you're going to read in a book or see in a TV show. Now I certainly don't don't subscribe to this beliefs because <laughs> this is a little too damn hopeless even for me. Really, good is just a fantasy, but evil is real, and we gotta just live with it. Uh, no. If any of us really believed that, after World War II, we'd all be speaking German. And if anyone's believed this after the Cold War, and it, we'd be speaking Russian. But instead, we speak our perspective languages, particularly English. And that why is? It's because even in all our flaws, and even in all the systems of governments being imperfect, there are certain lines that that we won't we won't stand for, but I just don't think that we need any of these grand battles anymore out there for us to understand what we need to do next. I mean, it would be wonderful. I I, I read today today uh, of all days, I read a series of articles about Chinese intentions on taking over the South China Sea and some of the horrible things that they're doing. It's obvious what's going on. And I'm telling you, if you got a if you got a publication that's backed by China anywhere in any fashion, the writers, no matter who they are, oh, it's just a fantasy. They don't mean well. They're just trying to get their stuff together, and they're still new on the block and this and that and whatever. And so you know, they poo poo the whole idea. Well, other ones are like, no, this is this is aggression. No, they're growing out of control. No, we're looking at another Cold War this time with China. No, they're even more dangerous than Russia ever was. Particularly because China actually has money versus Russia never really had very much money. Just whatever they were stealing the resources from their various satellite states. China doesn't have that same situation. They make the money 99% of the times legitimately with, with all the trade that they do and all the factories they have. And then they pump a lot of it back into trying to be the biggest person on the block. Which doesn't do well when you have all these other countries around them that are not too happy. And, and some of them quite, quite frightened. So I, I, I find it uh, uh, amazing how either 
we're blinded because we don't want to confront things or we're blinded because we're stuck on some ideology that kind of like puts those things on our eyes like the horses get so you can't only see so much keeps them from getting generally but they don't really see the whole picture and because you know they're masters if you want to call them or owners don't want them to but we can't do that we can't do that as writers because as writers if we want to craft something that that has some meaning to it if we want to craft something that that has value that's going to stand you know the test of time it doesn't have to stand the test of time for a thousand years although that'd be nice but it has to stand the test of time that you know, if you read it five years later you know, it still has relevancy like we talked about on the title of this show. It's not something that's so superficial like cotton candy that, you know, disappears in a moment. Or that is written in such a thinly disguised manner that we're not getting anything really from it. You're like, gee, I could have did that myself. Especially if you're a reader and you don't write. That's never a good sign when someone says that. So I make sure I don't publish stuff like that because that makes no makes no make sense at all. All right, our next segment over here is honest renditions of nature. Now let's talk about that because of all the quote positive stuff I get as submissions, and remember, at any given time, we can have up to three hundred of these submissions in a month. Now in the summertime. Up until around August, uh, it's always slower. So I can I can literally tell you that we probably only have about a third of normal would get in. But it doesn't matter in the end whether I'm getting 100 in, 300 in, or, or 500 in. There's always a sizable segment of that is full of what I call nature foams. Some of them are written in free verse. Some of them are written in rhyme. A lot of them are written in haiku, which I'm one of the magazines that don't mind doing that. As long as they have titles on it. As long as they, they stick into the rules and as long as it, it makes some sense. You know, because I, I don't like when they get so zen that I don't even understand what they're talking about. Well, that sounded good. What the hell does that mean? I like to have some idea at least. Other than that, I'm, I'm happy to, to publish these things. But we get so much of this nature stuff that I literally have to send a lot of it back. Sometimes because the titles are all the same stuff I've already gotten. You know, Red Blossom. The the rose that could. I don't even know what the hell that's supposed to mean. I've literally gotten about six poems that had that. I, I don't know. They're getting that from someplace on the internet? Or is this randomly these people came up with this horrible title? The rose that could. What, what does that even mean? And then, of course, it, you know you proceed to read something that's like, Oh my God, are you kidding me? Now, you already know, as I mentioned this a few times in the past, that I don't really have prejudices i don't really have these these ridiculous conditions and illusions like a lot of these magazines have you must be experienced as a writer you must have a million credits you must have academic proof or my favorite one uh you must have a a, a bunch of uh of an experience as a writer otherwise uh if you're just a first comer or something like that we're not too sure we won't we won't really reserve something for you well that stuff doesn't mean anything a lot of this stuff is just plain snobbery, and I, and I won't stand for it. Because, first of all, snobbery is always boring. 
Okay? Second of all, it tends to almost always be wrong. Okay? You ever spend any time with anybody who drinks wine? Who don't know crap about wine? I'm one of those people that actually know a great deal about wine. I've actually traveled around the world and drank wine in various countries. So I have a fairly good idea about how it operates, how to taste, what you have to do. So it's it's always uncomfortable for me, and I try to stay away from whenever I can, to be in company with people who are wealthy who don't know anything other than they have money. But they don't know crap about wine. Just some crap they read in a magazine maybe, or... Maybe their, 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 their waiter told them something, or possibly they, they read something on the internet. They want to sound intelligent. But a lot of snobbery in the wine tasting and the wine business. Mostly from ignorant people. And I know that the word uh, ignorant has a lot of stereotypical meanings to it. It tends to be in the vernacular in our society, especially in America, is supposed to be somebody that's not educated. It's supposed to be somebody that's, quote, low class. Um, guess what? You go into the wine world where a lot of people have money, a lot of them are ignorant. So as you can see, <laughs> that word can be used for all kinds of individuals because it means the same thing. You don't know crap. You're just wealthy. Big deal. Learn something. That'd be like the, the first thing I would say to somebody who was wealthy that got on my nerves. Uh, how about you learn something? You got all this money. How about you go take a damn class on what the hell wine testing is, how wine is made, what you need to understand about it. Then you wouldn't have all these crazy illusions and all these stupid, you know, uh, prejudices about this and that. I don't know about the the vintage in, in Chile, but uh, I know what's going on in Spain right now is great. I'm like, hey, okay, you, you read that in a magazine last month. Calm down. <laughs> so the snobbery, it continues in writing. And you got a lot of folks out there that, that, that there's literally a group of people that I, I, I hear from now and then. They're like, Mark, I just don't like publishing some of these people because I don't like the fact that they spent their entire life doing something else and then they get retirement and now they're free to write. I go, what the hell does that matter anyway? Why is that, first of all, your business like that? That means something. You're an editor, okay? You're not a life judge. You're definitely not a life coach. So what does that matter? In the end, are they bringing something useful to the table? Are they having something there that you can actually sell to your audience? Is there something there that's worthwhile to read? Are they saying anything that resembles some kind of creativity or, or originality? Then we could talk because it won't matter whether you just started last month or 57 years ago. We'll talk about what we should be talking about as editors and even as readers. Is the work good? Does the work have merit? Is the work original enough that you can put it out there? Not just them as the writers, but you as an editor. That has to be the criteria. Not because I'm interested in being some kind of like cosmic idealist over here this is what the job tells this is what you're supposed to be doing so i think unless the person reveals this sort of thing in you know in their bio yeah i was a chemist for 57 years and now i've been doing poetry for about two years and blah 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 
most of the times you won't know that anyway. You don't even know if the person is 18 years old or 68 years old. And I know you won't believe me when I tell you this, but in the end, it doesn't really matter. But Mark, don't you think that someone who's 68 can bring more of their life into this thing than someone who's 18? Uh, no, I don't. And the reason I don't is it's still about that person. It's still about the writer and what they are willing to talk about, what they are willing to reveal. Hell, in America right now, this is supposed to be the land of free speech. I can't believe how many people I talk to that they're like almost whispering. I don't want anyone to hear me. I don't want the school board to know I think this way. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Lovely. Thank you for teaching my children and being brave uh, while you're whispering. That's a, that's a real problem. I've read work from people that wasn't even 20 years old from other countries. And I found what they were putting together, they invested themselves into. They, they had serious things to talk about. Not necessarily philosophical, religious, or political things, but just things even about their internal lives. That seemed more advanced than, let's say, the 68-year-old that gave me something. Now, if you think about it, the retired person's probably been writing only a couple of years, and most likely that foreign student or individual has been writing for a couple of years. Why can one be more advanced and more in tune with themselves than the other? And it's not really a question of the age or, or even the country is simply a question of the person. One person is more connected with their self and, and they're willing to reveal certain things and take certain risks to get a result they want from that writing and the other's not. It could be the other is simply not in tune with themselves. It could be the other person is simply not interested in talking about themselves. It could be that they don't have enough instruction and training and all they know how to do is write things that have a, a superficial nature. All of those could be the answer. Which one in particular it is for each situation, hell if I know. I'll never really know. But I know generally how this sort of thing operates. This is why it's important that we find things in nature that is real and not a fairy tale, not a stereotype, not a preconception, and certainly not something ripped off from another novel or, or, or a movie or something. You know? All rivers are, you know, blue water clear. We, we can drink them when we, we go on camping. You know? How nice. But unfortunately, not all of them are like that. I don't have to be a city kid to understand that uh, if I went camping, uh, I'm not really interested in drinking this local water over here unless I got some proof that I'm not going to die in about two hours. Because who the hell knows what's in it? We have to be realistic. And I think that's one of the problems with a lot of the stuff I, I receive is I don't know what century they're coming from sometimes. I'm like, are you serious? And then, on top of all of that, a lot of this writing is stuck with what I find is to be very cliched vocabulary. Vocabulary that they almost feel has to go with this nature thing. Otherwise, they're not nature approved. You know, the Babylon Brook. Folks, if I ever hear those two words, 
for a thousand years, it, it, it's still, it's still, I would need another two thousand years more after that to not hear them. It's so idiotic. It's to the point, if I read something that has that in there, I want to stop and not read anything else on it because I just want to, like, rip it off my computer. In many cases, I'm, I'm actually sampling the stuff on my phone from the email. So I'm like, oh, oh my God. When I see stuff like that, I already know there's a problem. Because when I see that, I'm going to see 20 other examples. The whole thing's going to get ruined. But I can tell you that I am committed as an editor to read everything, no matter what. I don't take shortcuts. I don't ditch things. I don't do any of that crap. I think it's wrong, and I don't think writers deserve that. Regardless if they're babbling, broken me to death over here, okay? They still deserve to be read. And then I make a decision when I want to do anything beyond that. So it's still important. And I say that because I had something that happened to me just a few days ago that endlessly pissed me off. And, and still does. I submitted a book manuscript and the guy's literally telling me, the editor, yeah, we want at least 120 pages, blah, blah, blah. Followed everything to a, to a, to a T, including making sure I had a, a, a script to him that was at that length. Actually, it's slightly longer. But there was no rule against that. They just didn't want you to be below 120 pages. And I get the, I get the manuscript rejected. I didn't get a soulless form letter. No. I got a letter literally telling me Okay, incredibly enough that they only read the first couple of stories of it and it didn't connect with them. It didn't it didn't move them, it didn't really reach them, so they put it down and they rejected it. Now, some people will tell you in fact a lot of people will tell you, well shit, Mark, don't even reply. You can just burn a bridge. Hey. I'm old enough now that I don't really care anymore. You have to be able to speak your truth and you have to be able to, to remind people that, you know, you're watching too and you expect fair play and you're still human and sure, rejection hurts in general, but it really hurts when you're being screwed off and, and, and unfairly treated. So I reminded them, I said, listen, you're telling me that you're asking for 120 pages and, and you're reading like five or six of them and then you put it down. Now, I'm not going to give you a comment about the, my style of writing or, or the quality of writing because that would be incredibly biased. All I can say to you as both a writer and as an editor is I, just like everybody else, deserves to have what I send out there. As long as I'm following all the rules, and I did, I should have everything read. Who's to know that maybe on page 47 it connects with you? Who's to know that... Anything in there is of any value. How the hell are you ever going to know when you stop at page 6? Now, I understand that there's not a comment about that I suck as a writer. I got that. Because to me, it's a comment as the editor sucks. They're being lazy. They're being unfair. And they're actually being, in my, in my opinion, counter to their own guidelines. How am I supposed to figure out which piece of something else should go in the front because God forbid if they don't, they can't make it out of 10 pages, they're, you know, you're doomed. Who knows? It's a gamble. You just don't know. I decided to put something together that was of a chronological nature. 
So that's how it, it meant. Because guess what? I'm not naive. I'm not really cynical. And I fully expect that if I'm following your guidelines, I'm expecting you to do the same thing. I'm not expecting you to toss in the towel after six or seven pages. I'm, I'm quite surprised a person even admitted doing this. But yeah, I communicated with them and let them know that's that's complete crap. Now, I'm not suggesting they should go back and read it again. Maybe they'll come up with a different solution. You know, you rejected, you rejected it. You know, but I reject your rejection because it's a bunch of crap. That's why it's necessary. That's why I read it all. But when I see cliches, when I see nonsense in there, and I see it more, statistically more, I swear, probably like 5,000% more in, in a positive piece of work or a nature piece of work than anything else I get. It goes back to what we talked about. It goes back to my philosophy of if you want to talk about all this wonderful, cheery, sticky candy stuff, great. Have it be worth something. Make it your best effort. Bring some depth to it. Who says you can't bring a personal dimension to your form poem? Or maybe you can even bring a social element to it. I had someone that, that sent me a poem. And I, I don't think it was a frog. I think it was a, a lizard. It was a lizard poem, okay? I know. It's a lizard poem. But... Instead of just talking about, you know, the lizard eating bugs and walking around and this and that, it had an element of, of environmentalism. And not the boring stuff where, you know, if we throw a Coke can in the river, you know, all Earth will end in 27 years or something. I'm talking about making some sense. Hey, this lizard's sick. It could be indicative of us. Of polluting, it's not fair to the creatures, and in many instances, they wind up becoming, you know, our barometers or our thermometers or, you know, our chemical Geiger detectors for the the quality of a lane because of what we've done. I think lizards and frogs and you know stuff like that be become that actually in, in a sad way. There's a good dimension right there. It didn't necessarily have to be a personal dimension, but it was a dimension that makes that lizard poem more than just a lizard poem it makes it a little bit about what's going on in society what's going on to the world you know i i understand we're not going to sit there and, and talk politics with the with the lizard and the lizard's not going to you know smoke cigars in our living room and say how much he thinks wonder woman is hot okay but it's not hard to say as, as a human being or just a person that's living that to destroy a, a landscape with lizards because we're so damn careless. Yeah, that, 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 that's stupid. That's just a tragedy. And it deserves to be written about. And, and there you go. That's, that's how you make a lizard interesting. That's how you make anything in, in, in nature, you know, come off the pages where you're like, yeah, you know, that, that is a bunch of crap. You don't even have to be an environmentalist. Hell, you don't even have to somebody who's ever even seen a lizard or touched a lizard to say, yeah, that, that definitely is some bogus crap right there. That, we, we shouldn't be doing that stuff. Right? I, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting people out there crying for lizards and having protests. Although, the way things are going these days, uh, having a lizard protest is probably just around the corner. We've had everything else protest. Why not that? But, nevertheless, that is how you do it. That's how you 
get honesty from the positive things you're saying. Because I think that's at the heart of the problem. A lot of this stuff is not just poorly written. It's not just riddled with cliches. It's also, in many instances, just dishonest. It, it really is. Because when you have all these crazy stereotypes, what the hell are you telling me? Hmm? I'd love to think that every time I went camping someplace I've never been to before, that I can just trust that everything's going to be wonderful over there. The trees are not going to be sick and falling on me when I'm in the damn camper. Or the uh, the water I can actually drink and I'm not going to get colon cancer in about two weeks. Or um, I'm not going to climb the side of something and, and actually know it's going to be a giant rock fall and I'm going to die. Well, I'm not paranoid of being outdoors. And I have experience actually. But it doesn't mean that the people before me have respected what they should have respected. So let's not make everything to be beautiful and wonderful when there's instances where it's not. And there's instances where if we're going to write something about nature, how about we be honest? I love this mountain. Love this river. Grew up here, did this, do that. Now I got a bunch of these people doing some crap and I don't, for it, I don't like it. I'm not going to stand for it. I'm going to do something about it. Write something about that. There you go. That's how you get us interested in nature. When someone's trying to take a crap on it. That's how you get us interested about you. Where you remember, not from nostalgia, but you remember distinctly that when you were 10 and you were playing in this river, it was certainly clearer than it is now. Now it looks like someone dropped an antifreeze in it and, and everything around it seems to be dead. Not a, lot of, not a lot of poetry in, 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 in death, but I could tell you something. There is poetry in truth. Yes, I'm disappointed. Yes, this is a bunch of crap. Yes, I'd like to do something about it. What the hell happened to yesterday? What the hell did we do? And I'm not suggesting that you're only going to get any real gravity from nature poems or nature essays by, you know, accentuating the, you know, the, the negative part of it or the disaster part of it or the things that we, we screwed up part of it. You could still talk about the beauty of the stars at night twinkling when you're above the sky. And, and the sky seems to only be clear at night. In the daytime, it kind of seems crappy and foggy and polluted, but now it seems better at night. I don't know, because the stars are brighter than the pollution, or it just that's just the way it perceives to you. But we need to go back to finding things that are honest in there and not pretending because we're writing something that we believe to be positive that we're supposed to like stretch everything. That's how we go over to the dark side of stuff when folks just make up stuff, when people just take everything for granted. Or because they want to, you know, throw a white lie in there for a good cause. This is not what writers are supposed to be doing. And this, this, a form called fiction that you could do that in. You don't want to be doing that really in poems as much. You want to, you want to make something that's, that's real. You only have so much time to catch a person's attention. And I'm sorry to say, just like my book, you're going to have people that are like, oh, no, after that fourth line, that was it for me. I just, I'm going to go on to something else. It happens. It's not fair. I certainly don't urge it. I don't like it. But we still have to figure out some way to grab their attention. I'm just telling you that making up a story about something that is actually true doesn't always really help you. 
why don't we just be radical and rebellious and, I don't know, be honest? Because <laughs> that's the world we live in right now. Okay? The, uh, the protester uh, who doesn't wash for three days and smokes pot half the day, uh, I don't know, that's the norm now. You want to be rebellious? I don't know. Uh, be honest, uh, hold a job, and try to vote. That, that, that's, that's, that's the rebel these days. That's how much the world has changed. So you want to write something about the nature of things? You want to write something about what you feel inside? Be candid. You want to be a rebel? That's, that's how you're being a rebel. Cause, uh, you being 68 with long hair? Well, we've seen it already. You be 78 and smoking pot? Yeah, seen all that already too. Hell, half the country seems to be doing that now. So, that's not poetic anymore. It's certainly not rebellious. It's not cool. It's not even hippie. It's almost like standard. That's, that's the truth, unfortunately. So write something that, that does have some, some real honesty to it. I, I think it's a big problem in our society here in America on many fronts, and I definitely think it's a problem with our writing, especially when we're trying to ex accentuate the positive. We don't need, we don't need to exaggerate. Just be honest. Alright, our next chapter over here in this segment here is inner life and family it's like the next stage of quote positive poems that i get now don't get me wrong i i get the you know life and family poems that are just rough and negative too okay <laughs> but i'm i'm telling you it's not a coincidence those ones always seem to be written better than the other ones the other ones that are like a reflection about you know, they sound like they sound like John Lennon on crack. And, you know, imagine if everybody can be peaceful and yeah, okay, yeah. No, I'm sorry, I can't imagine that because I live in reality. And even as a writer, there's only so many things we can use for our imagination before we're going to start getting ourselves in trouble. In a life, I get a lot of those poems, and a lot of them can try to be positive, but again. Trapped in bad titles, imprisoned in cliches, okay, shackled and friggin' chained, <laughs> all right, in, in poor vocabulary, sometimes even crappy grammar. And you guys already know that I'm not a grammar Nazi at all. I mean, I'm still an editor, I'm still a writer, I still have to obey some of the basic laws of English, but I'm not looking to be completely religious on them. I'll, I'll give people some leeway, especially if, if it holds the flow and it holds the whole structure of the thing together. Hell with it. Go with it. But if you're just starting off crappy, I don't know. Do you, do you know how to write? It doesn't, it doesn't help your cause if you have one. And sometimes I don't even know if folks have a cause. I might even ask when I reject it sometimes. This is why I did to do. What was the process here? Do you have a plan? If you don't, go get one and come back. We're never a magazine aerial chart that tells people to never come back unless they just continue to violate rules. But ironically, if you keep violating the quality of your work, I'll keep allowing you to return. I like to see if you improved. I like to see if you learned anything at all. So I never ban those people. I only ban the people that just... They're so uh, arrogant and, and idiotic that they just think they could just do whatever they want. But Mark, I, I have 98 credits over here. Blah, 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 blah. And this professor, that's great. But you still uh, disobeyed almost everything that we possibly put down as guidelines. 
I mean, <laughs> when, when do I jump in as an editor, huh? Or, or am I supposed to be so impressed with your resume that, you know, I, I forget to be who I am? Uh, no. So, in a life, make sure if you're writing something about your inner life, and your inner life, uh, we're talking about anything from memories from long ago, dreams you might have had, your thoughts that you don't normally share with people, you know? Uh, I like my neighbor. I just really wish they wouldn't piss on the lawn in the daytime. Couldn't they just wait tonight? You know, that sort of thing. Okay? If you're going to write those things, you still need to have some kind of gravity to it. You still need to have some kind of umph for it. It still needs to make some sense. It still needs to have some relevancy on the people. Don't forget the people you're writing for. They're going to be reading this if I publish it. That's how I'm always looking at things. Not even just looking at what Mark thinks about. I'm also imagining, is this going to work really well over there in Ohio? Uh, probably not. And it's really important for editors to make sure that what they're putting out there has a chance, at least, of making a connection, of finding an audience or reaching somebody's heart or mind. That's still an important goal. It's still something that we have to do. Because you're not an editor if you just publish everybody and say, hey, let them figure it out. Yeah. That's not an editor, okay? That's an idiot. There's a big difference between the two, okay? I'm not interested in being an idiot. I do this on my own time. So I like to get it right. And I want you to get it right. That's why we have so many of the shows, particularly this show. Family. Get a lot of these poems, and, and, and I, I, I swear to God, I think if I could put this in math, I think I actually reject more family poems than I do frog poems. That's how bad they are. I'm not really sure what the writer is thinking. And oftentimes I ask. I, I really wish I'd get an answer one day. I'll take it, the answer. Now, don't get me wrong. The answer is not going to say, uh, yeah, I'm going to publish you now because you just gave me a great answer, but... I just love to hear it because I don't know what's on that person's mind. I don't know why a whimsical tale about their grandfather accidentally mooning some people at the county fair is supposed to be interesting for us, especially since I've probably seen about 20 poems of like this. So why the hell is this supposed to be interesting and unique? Okay. Why can't somebody do something like this and instill other elements in it so this way it, it does become relevant. It does have some purpose and, and, and some meaning. And here's an example that you could do. I'm not suggesting this is the only way of going about it. This is just a suggestion I'm giving you to make my point on this podcast. You can mention that um, your grandfather is a real fan of, of these county fairs and from a child where he put out the pig to try to win some money and, and, and buy some stuff and an award uh, to when he worked there to get some money before he went off to war. And then later on where he brought his girl over there who he married. And then later on when he lost his way because of, of dementia. And now occasionally he just moons people. There you go. That's a good example. Now, I haven't seen anybody wrote like this before. And, of course, I'm not going to write this, even though I'm telling you these are ideas off the top of my head because 
Uh, I'm from New Jersey, so we don't have county fairs, and uh, uh, my grandfather never mooned anybody. Uh, thank God, because I wouldn't want to be there for that, okay? But that is a way to put relevancy into, into that poem. So this way, it's just not about your grandfather's butt, or not about a wacky old relative, but about a man that believed in things that he loved and, and and used those things throughout his life and now has has lost his way maybe never to return because of dementia so you still have something that's interesting and and in the end you you maintain his dignity even though he's showing his butt to strangers because there's more to him than just mooning people that's how you do it that's how it becomes relevant that's how it becomes interesting that's how you invest some of yourself in there. And, you know, and you might, I haven't, no one said this to me, but, you know, theoretically somebody can always say, but Mark, I'm not really sure if any of that sort of stuff has happened before. And um, so I'm not really comfortable putting that in there. Well, it's a poem. No one says you can't have fiction elements in there because in the end, is it not still about trying to say something more of your grandfather than just that he's sitting, he's putting his ass out? Is it not more than, you know, doing something to help him maintain his dignity? Because that's the most important thing I feel you could do with our elderly population is is making sure that, you know, they can have as much freedom as they can possibly have, you know, medically in their conditions and, and still maintain some, some dignity. Because I don't know about you, but when you lose your dignity, you know, for some people they, they lose you know, their will to live. And then sometimes that depression that comes, that's what lowers a person's immunity and makes them more vulnerable to infections and heart attacks and, you know, etc. So these are things that we could be doing, even in, in a piece of writing like that, even if it's not all true, because you're being creative, you're being ethical, you're being interesting, and you're definitely uh, being uh, somebody that's writing something that's going to launch a bit off the page and, and grab somebody. I don't know why that's so difficult to do. Why everybody has to make these these family things boring. I I, I can't tell you how many times I've asked somebody, and, and I didn't do it in a sarcastic manner. I literally mean this. Do not realize that we all have families with some similar things. So why are you writing this? You're not presenting anything at all that's new. Anything that would help explain why this is interesting. Why this might be even different than your experience. Because it doesn't matter, you know, if you come from a village off of the, you know, the, the River Nile or, or if you're just a, a kid from, from the ghetto in, in, in Ohio. We all got our crazy family members. We all got the ones that preach this thing and do that in a different manner. We all got the ones that are rocks and that are steady and loving. And we all got the ones that, you know, um, life has dealt them a bitter hand and they became even more bitter. We all have these things. I don't know anybody that has this perfect family. And believe it or not, I get some perfect family poems sometimes. And I got to keep myself from throwing up because I'm like, Jesus, what's wrong with you? Because if you're going to give me a perfect family poem, 
Well, guess what? Your damn poem better be perfect. It better be perfect in every way possible because you're selling a dream that very few of us will ever believe. At the heart of many of our problems as humans and as writers, <laughs> it's the things we learn from our family, good and bad. It helps shape our character, our set of values, even how we practice or not practice ethics. They didn't come from a college or a school. They didn't come from the streets or the farms. I came from right in that living room in the house. Right from the parents. Parents that sometimes didn't know what the hell they were doing. Other times just did the best they could. And sometimes just gave up. And you were on your own. Sometimes writing is the only thing that helps a person find the lost person in their childhood. And I'm alright with that. I've known plenty of people that have done that. It's one of the purposes of writing. It's one of the reasons why it's out there. So you could have a valid life story that you don't want to reveal for embarrassment or maybe they're still alive and God forbid they might read it and get mad at you. Or you can have one of those situations where you just don't know how to do that. That's when you have to ask for help. You can email the editor here. You can uh, talk to other people that you might see in books or, or, or in, in magazines or on the internet. Hey, I mean, I like what you did. Uh, I'd like to do something similar. Uh, what do you suggest I do? Nothing wrong with that. I'm not suggesting every writer is going to answer you back and, and say anything. Uh, but it could happen. And it has happened. And oftentimes that could help a person. Because... There's nothing worse than being corny. There's nothing worse than being cliche. And there's nothing worse, in my opinion, of writing something that looks like, I don't know, 15,000 of the same things I've read in the last five years. And you haven't talked to any of these people and you're still doing something similar. That shows there's a problem. Part, not all, but part of being a writer is figuring out what you want to reveal. Not always what you need to reveal because people have to process things in a different fashion. But at least what they want to reveal and work on making it interesting. And then you can put it out there. Because it will still ring true even if it isn't always true. Not because you're some kind of great liar, because you're becoming a good writer. And that's often what a writer is in many instances. You know, I, I laughed when I heard it one time. Writers are liars that tell the truth. <laughs> it sounds it sounds like a conundrum, doesn't it? it? Sounds like what the hell does this mean? Is this is this one of those oxymorons like military intelligence or French manners? Uh no. But at the heart of that particular aphorism, I, I, I see the, I see the truth in it. I literally see it. I don't even have to hear it. I could see it because that's what people can do as writers. You can take something that's inherently true and just shave off some stuff so that it can be handled by the reader and digested, fictionalized enough of it, and it still rings true. It still has some weight to it. It still has some meaning to it. It still has power. 
and I find for many writers, they don't have enough power because they are not investing enough of themselves in there. We talked about this on the previous episode. That was a big, big part of it investing in it. And that's what you have to do. I mentioned that I'll be saying about some of the same things in this show because there's some real connections to that. We have to do that. And when you read as much as I've read over the years, you can tell who's investing and who's not. You can tell who, who gives a crap about what they want to say and do and who just wants to, you know, run the, run the, run the, the gamut. I got, the other day, a person sent me a, a series of poems based on baseball players or baseball situations. The person was fascinated with baseball. God bless them. I couldn't take any of them. And the reason why I take any of them is I'm not against baseball. I'm not against sports. In fact, I think it'd be nice to have more of that particular topic, you know, aerial chart. It'd be great. But you can't be so inside on these sort of things that people don't understand what the hell is going on. You remember, I got people that are reading this magazine in Egypt and Pakistan and Greece and all these different places. You know, a lot of these places don't even have baseball. And they might understand some of the rudimentary concepts of it if you put it into a poem in such a way for metaphorical reasons or even for some historical reasons. They can catch that. But they can't understand all the language and all the things that are going on, all the inside angles of baseball and its history and all that. And, and then you, you're gonna, you want me to publish this? Hell, I don't even understand half of this. And I'm an American who grew up with baseball. Not, I guess I'm not that much of a fan to know all these stories, but I don't know how many there are. So I had to reject those and tell them, listen, this is not going to work for me because, you know, first thing as an editor, as I need to have a handle on it myself before I'm asking somebody from Egypt to do that. So I, I, I think that's important, too, that when we put together things and we invest in ourselves in it, that person certainly was. God bless him. But you still have to speak enough in the language that people is going to understand what you're talking about. Okay? Because nothing in that poem or those poems made a lot of sense at all unless you already knew what the person was on a little bit about their life, which means that it needed to be broader in context of that for you to understand it. You know? And I, I, I'm, I'm not in the habit of telling people, yeah, uh, these are good works, nevertheless, you're just gonna have to Google to kinda get you everything. I'm sorry, folks, if, if, if I'm publishing something that you gotta Google things about, then there's a problem with the editor. Forget about the writer. The writer's still good. That guy's a very good writer. It just wasn't gonna, it wasn't gonna fly for me. Cause it just made no sense. Too much, too much work. And not enough of making it simple enough for us to catch what's going on. Maybe for some diehard, uh, you know, uh, magazine about baseball or some diehard readers and everything. Uh, this is something they, they're going to treasure and they should. God bless them. But it's not for me and it's not for most literary people. So we still have to have some commonalities there. Because if we don't, then people get lost. And when people get lost, I, I promise you, they're not going to just simply say to their friend, you know, that was a really talented writer. I just don't know what the hell they're talking about. 
Most people are not going to say that. They're going to say the obvious that comes to them quickly. What in the hell is that? And then they're going to move on. No reflection on that you're talented. No reflection on, I'll, I'll wait for Janice Robson to uh, come up with something else later. But you know, I'll remember her until then. Uh, no, they won't even remember anything. So that we need to avoid. And that's how you avoid it. Whether it be in inner life or, or, or family poems. Make it interesting. Make it something that we can relate to. Make it relevant. Give up a piece of who you are in that writing. Because guess what, folks? Like it or not, fair or not, that is your job as a writer. To take something out of yourself and put it in there. I'm not suggesting that you need to violate your own privacy. I'm not suggesting your dark, deep secrets are supposed to be in every poem. Otherwise, you're not a writer. Otherwise, a poem has no meaning or no merit. I'm not suggesting that at all. But something about who you are and what you've seen and what you experienced should be in there. Because if it's not, it's just a ramble collection of words. You know? I can get that from Scrabble, folks. I don't need to go off and spend my time editing stuff and, and reading stuff and having other people read it with their time if you're not willing to put what's necessary. They expect that from you because you're a writer. You're supposed to be doing that. All right, last segment here is making the subject relevant or the subjects relevant and we talked a little bit about that already with the inner life and family but we'll go more deeper into that it's very important that the relevancy that we're talking about is not just simply that you're on you're on the mark you're on key i had i had a, a nice lady i don't know maybe a year ago she sent me a she sent me a a a, a fiction story. It was obviously non-fiction based and she created it more fiction-like. But in the end, it just boiled down to um, the reminiscing uh, of, of being in an old car that's not around and relatives that are no longer alive, but they had a wonderful time when they went on these family trips. That was it. All of us have had these similar type experiences. I'm telling you, there was nothing more to that piece than what I just told you right there. And this was a person that I could tell was not a bad writer at all. They just didn't have good material. You know, they used to say uh, uh, in some films sometimes, man, the acting was great, but boy, that dialogue sucked. Well, guess what? Some actors are not that great as acting, so they really lean on the script. And if the script sucks, they're really going to suck. And that's what happens with something like that. When you put together something like that, that you could put an elephant to sleep, then it's very hard to tell, in some instances, where your head is at, where your heart is at. Are you a good writer? Do you want to be a good writer? Do you, does that even make any sense? And let's break it down for, for you know, relevancy's sake. Why does a person send a story like that? I guess you could also say, to rephrase it, why does a person write a story like that? All right, because well, I guess we realize, you know, they're sending it because they want to get it published. All right, so why does a person write a story like that? 
Well, a couple of reasons come up to my mind right away. Because, again, I ask people these questions. Whether they seem rude or not, I don't care. I really want to know. I never get any answers. I don't know if they think I'm being sarcastic or something, but I'm not. I really like to know. So all I can do is guess. Maybe one of those people um, in the story died. And this was some kind of homage to you know their life or something. Maybe... Um, they're having some bad times in their life right now, and reflecting on on times when they were good is a good way for them to settle their their souls, their hearts, their feelings, or maybe an onset of depression or something. Okay, fine. Believe it or not, none of those reasons I just gave you right there are invalid. They're very valid reasons, but if you think about those reasons, and then you think about the piece I just told you about, you can see how much more could be done. If the person invested themselves in that. If there's really somebody in that story that's now dead and you're feeling bad and, and you owe them something and you think they deserve more respect or whatever, then why not put together a piece that solely reflects on them? Make it interesting and, and, and maybe a little bit bittersweet and let's go with that. Why does it have to be the falling asleep, practically emotionally neutral, you know, Family loved this car. We had great times on these trips. Because to me, a story like that tells me more about what's not being said than what's being said. Because I, I, I hear in a story like that, you know, sadness. And I hear in a story like that, you know, I got I to gotta reach back 57 years for this because, uh, you know, right now, 57 minutes ago, you know, my husband sucks and uh, my, my children have no respect for me and... You know, I got a leaky roof, and I'm not really sure if um, I like all the people around me. I'm not even sure if I like myself. So let me go back to the times when I did like people and I did like myself 57 years ago. Now, I might be reaching for all this. Maybe this is just some dramatic thing to make the show sound interesting. Hey, that's always a possibility. But I'm being honest with you when I'm telling you that I'm thinking about what the hell is the purpose of this piece. People want to know that. And the funny thing is, if they have to formally ask that, then you have done a bad job in your writing. Because anytime you invest in yourself and you put that into that writing and people get a connection and they get that whole wow factor thing and they're never saying out loud, what the hell was the purpose of this? They never have to because they now get something from it and that becomes the purpose to them anyway. But when you stay on the rails, when you stay on the fences, when you're putting together something that you know that, that's flat and doesn't have much life and that's literally riddled with, if not vocabulary cliche, just the entire theme cliche, you're not doing yourself a service as a writer. You're not doing anybody any service is what you're trying to say. We've all had those things. Hell, if anything, that they're almost like a shot of, you know, cerebral whiskey to our brain to, to, to kind of keep us off when we have those bad days or when we have a bad marriage or when we had bad children or we had bad health. Hell, when we had bad breath. 
We call those things back. We do that on a private basis many times. Sometimes not even sharing about with other people what's going on. But if you dare put that on paper, it better be more than that. It better be more than some self-pity and crap. It better be more than some flat nonsense. It better be more than a jumble words that you just typed on some word processor just before you were checking out the, the crockpot recipes. This isn't going to fly. It's not going to fly in literature. It's not going to fly in my magazine. And it's certainly not going to fly in the way I look at things. Because you're not bringing anything new to the table. Well, Mark, there isn't anything new. There's plenty of new. 50 years ago, we didn't have rockets going out to space every other day. We didn't have microwaves that can literally heat up our food without having to turn on some jet gas and then, God forbid, forgetting and the whole house blows up. Okay? We didn't have people that might be cloned one day. We didn't have people that can have operations now that we were only dreaming about a few years ago. Where we have cancers that actually can be cured now. We literally have a horrible virus, the AIDS, that you can literally have a, a lifetime of it with the drugs they finally developed in the last 30 years. Didn't take a thousand years to do so. Hell, we have a virus right now. It didn't even take America less than a year to create a vaccine for it. We continue to do the incredible. We continue to do the things that yesterday we said are impossible. So please don't tell me about there's nothing new to write. Maybe there's nothing new for you to write because you're still fixated on your grandmother or you're still uh, in, enamored about you know, your life on the farm. I actually got a story from somebody that sent me that. They sent me a couple of pieces, but that was one of them. I, I had to reject it because I'm like, okay, is there anything new you could tell us about your life on the farm that we haven't read in 10,000 Life on the Farm stories? I don't know if people realize that they have to add something to it. You want to tell me about the farm? Okay. Well, guess what? As a reader and as an editor, I, I like to know more about the farmer. That's just me, but I think that's what a lot of people want to know. Because I, I don't know if you realize or not, what, you can be in Uganda or you can be over in, in Minnesota. You know, farms pretty much work the same. <laughs> okay, no matter what part of the country is, no matter what part of the world is, I think I think that like the last 150 years, there hasn't been too much different things in the farm. Other than a couple pieces of machinery, it's still backbreaking work. It's still work that you have to, you know, not be an atheist about because you got to believe that God's going to bring some rain down there. Otherwise, all that stuff you've done was for nothing. It's still work that you have to sell things in order to be able to make money. It's something that people need desperately, food. So we kind of know all this already. We don't really know a lot about the farmer. It'd be interesting to see stories about the farmer. What does the farmer feel? Is the farmer a, a, a faithful man to God? Does he believe that, you know, he's connected to the earth? Is, is the farmer the first environmentalist? We hear all this stuff about, you know, they're using chemicals to make the food and this and that. And I don't know. I'd like to hear what the farmer has to say about that. All the battles they have to face. Weather and broken machinery and insects and chemicals and 
wolves trying to eat your lambs and you know cows trying to run off with horses and you know <laughs> all, all the things that that happen in in, in these uh in these in environments we should hear more about that that is more interesting that is more i think telling of what we can learn from literature if we can't do something like that then we fail not only as writers but we fail in the positive we fail in the light that we thought was so important that we're trying to construct these lighter topics with relevancy in mind just like the title of this show well that's how you're going to construct them telling something that might be old in a new way telling something new that many people not be aware of I remember when I visited the farm in Germany when I was serving in the Air Force and I had one of those uh, occasions where they allowed me to stay for the weekend so I could learn a lot of stuff and I and I did I learned that by Sunday uh, yeah I couldn't wait to go to church not because I was so religious it's because I didn't have to do any backbreaking work I might be able to catch a nap in there before I have to go back to doing some more work. Because I, I, I was on the farm that, as much as they were religious, uh, they still did some things. Even though supposedly it's a day of, you know, you're off. Uh, no, they still had some stuff to do. You know, you, you, you might be off, uh, but the, but the cows are not off. And, <laughs> and the, and the, and the other ones still need to be fed and the pegs got, you still got stuff to get done. You just don't have as long as a day, but you still do things. But it was, it was an incredible experience. And I'll tell you, if you um a city kid like me, um, you, you stop the farm jokes real quickly. Because you're like, oh my God. I got aches on muscles I didn't even know I had. I, I've been drunk where I thought that my sleep was more sound. Okay, than when I was sober. And I've never been as sound sleep is when I worked on the farm. And I swear, they didn't look like they were overworking me. I was just doing the standard things. I'm like, really? This this crap is standard? And, and you look at the watch, because, you know, we didn't have any iPhones back then. Um, and, and 12 hours went by. And you're like, oh, that's the reason why I feel I'm going to drop dead here in a moment. And they're like, yeah, you want to hang out and talk a little bit and Smoke a cigarette, have a coffee, and I'm like, uh, love coffee, love cigarettes, love talking. Uh, I need to go to sleep right now before I, uh, freaking pass out. <laughs> you know? That's the kind of work that the, those folks do. But those are the kind of stories we should be hearing about. You know, I, I remember when I was in the Air Force, I remember the stories that my friend Mitch Williams, God bless you out there in Nebraska, come from a corn farm. I think his um, uh, parents were, um, oh, what was it? I, I remember the country, but I remember him telling me that they were from uh, Eastern European stock. And um, so they, they played the um, polka music using the uh, the accordion. And he would tell me all the different stories about the farm, about shooting rats and, you know, with a gun, not a BB gun and, you know, how lambs look for ways to die that were so sensitive. You couldn't go there with a cold. You'd kill like a third of them like in a day. 
you know, and gun gunfire too close would have him have a heart attack. Wolves attacking them would a lot of times would make him have the heart attacks. You know, that's where we get the term scared to death from. Literally, Lamb would be so scared of the of the wolf coming to eat him that he would just die of a heart attack right there. Which, I don't know, maybe it's more merciful because otherwise you're going to be eaten while you're still alive because that's what they do, the wolves. But nevertheless, the, the stuff I couldn't believe. I mean, I'm from the city. I mean, you know, that stuff doesn't happen. I think the only animals I ever saw in the city, unless I went to the zoo, was the pigeon, the squirrel, the dog, and the cat. That was it. I'm serious. That was it. For most of my childhood, I think I saw like four animals. You know, I thought the the the, the squirrels were kind of cute. I thought the pigeons were kind of like weird. You know. I've always been a fan of cats, love cats, eh, not so much about dogs. That's it. Incredibly enough, I mean, in, in a different environment, those animals become different things. You know, he's telling me about how the, the dog acts as a security to help the wave, wave off. Of wolves, are, they're not dumb. They hear a dog nearby, they won't try to attack not necessarily because they're afraid of the dog. It's just that they want a quick kill and get the hell out of there. They don't, they don't want to spend half their damn day trying to fight a dog off. Then be so tired or possibly injured that they can't go over there and eat their lamb chops. They're wolves, but they're not dumb. And cats, they're not just the beautiful animals we have walking around our houses or our apartments. They are security at the farm to keep down the mice, to make sure the rats are not invading the grain uh, silos. Because you need all that stuff for the, you know, store it for later on. You're using it to feed the animals. Cats are a big part of that. I mean, he told me at one point he had at least that he can recall 14 or 16 cats. And I can't, I can't envision having that many cats, and that's all they do. And they don't really come in the house too much, and oftentimes you can't even remember half their damn names. To me, it's almost a sin to not remember the, your name of your cat. But when you're a farmer, you know, you're like, hey, help me run this farm. I'm lucky I remember my cow's name. I gotta remember the 14 cats' names. So, it does give you a whole nother perspective on things. But these, are the things, folks, that when we construct these lighter, interesting, and fun topics, we can make them honest. We can make them relevant to other people's lives, especially if they're not from the farm. I mean, I was fascinated as hell from the things he told me, and I had, at the point he was telling me this, zero farm experience. I never even visited the farm when I lived in New Jersey, and a lot of people don't realize how many farms are in New Jersey. We got Jersey cows and Jersey tomatoes and Jersey corn, Jersey strawberries. There's a lot there, believe it or not, and good. It's not that far away from the city either. So imagine being in the city for so many years like that and then go visit New York City and then visit the zoo and, you know, see more animals and the planetariums and the museums and all the incredible things of, of art and history and culture and intellectualism. And then you just don't even realize that 20 miles outside of your area, there's a whole farm with a whole different life style, a whole different way of living and thinking. And you're missing all of that. I had to go to Germany to find that. 
And when I came back to New Jersey, I, I, I had a, a bigger appreciation from it. And like I said, I didn't have any farm jokes after that. Because it's easy to have those jokes when you don't know what the hell's going on. <laughs> Once you do, you're like, huh, Lord. I still counted it to this day as a positive experience being on that farm. Even if it was just for the weekend. Because I did learn a lot. It did open my eyes to a number of things. <laughs> I remember the farmer laughing because I could see it in his eyes. He knew the answer already. Yeah, when, when do you want to come back? I'm like, uh, I think this is all I need to, to know at the moment, okay? So I'm not going to sit here and lie to you <laughs> and, and betray your hospitality. I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> uh, I'm not coming back, okay? But uh, keep sending that fruit over to the city because I'm going to need it. And now I know where it comes from and what people have to do to put it on my table and how how it's a blessing and and how I, I can see why and, and someone made a joke about this and you know I, I laugh with it too because you know I guess it has some validity to it I don't know exactly how much but you know they, they say that you don't find any atheists in the foxholes you know when you're in battle and in, in war and I know something about that but they also say you don't find any atheists uh, in the farming because people rely on their faith and, and on prayer as much as they rely on, on 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 hard work because in the end they, they can't do much about the weather. They're at its mercy. So, I don't know if there's a such thing as an atheist farmer. <laughs> I'd love to meet one of them. <laughs> I'd love to hear his scientific explanation on... Uh, you know, everything he's done and, and how in the end it might not matter. Because maybe it doesn't matter whether you believe in God or not. If you have the mercy of weather, you have the mercy of weather. But I, it would be fascinating to hear about that. It really would. Anyway, folks, I'm hoping that this helps you have a, a, a better and a greater understanding of how to approach things in a positive light, how to write some of those lighter things, but not be corny and syrupy about it. Not be shallow or superficial about it. It should have, in my humble opinion, the same seriousness, the same professionalism, the same meat, if you want to call it that. I know I got a couple vegan fans out there, so don't take me uh, uh, rude over here if I'm saying meat. It's just a good metaphor, okay? I can't really say the same carrot. It doesn't really sound the same, okay? Sorry. But the same meat of the dark stuff that people put out there as well. Because I think we hurt. Our writing, we hurt ourselves, we hurt some of the perspectives that we could bring out there. You know? So keep that in mind. Being more honest and more connected, you're going to be a better writer. And people are going to have a better connection. And you never know the life that you're going to change from what you did. Sometimes you might get something back from somebody, other times you're just never going to know. But I'll tell you. Because... Without being honest, I honestly don't see in this day and age, and we live in an incredibly complicated day and age, how we can get anywhere, you know, in life, in writing, or anything. Because we're, we're getting to a point now in our society over here, and some people have said this already, I don't know how close we are, but some people say, hey, we're getting close to Rome where we just don't seem to appreciate all the wonderful freedoms and all, all the grandeur that we have in our republic 
because all we're doing is not talking to each other, not being honest with each other, not even being honest with ourselves. And then we wonder why we have so many problems, why so many people are, you know, having depression and so many people are unhappy. I'm not suggesting that honesty itself cures all of that. But I am suggesting that it'll help a lot of it. Because when you remove dishonesty from your life, you'd be surprised on how things seem clearer. How you feel that tomorrow could be better. And how in the end, whatever time you have left, you could spend it wiser and try to be happier. Well, that's the best way of, I feel, of gaining any kind of happiness is starting to learn how to be honest with others and honest with ourselves. All right, folks, God bless and good night. This is Mark Anthony Rossi, Strength to be Human. That's episode 207, Constructing Lighter Topics with Relevancy in Mind. Take care. Thank you for listening. Follow the show and support our efforts by visiting our sponsors at www.strengthtobehuman.com or purchasing an ebook at www.somapublishing.com.